Cradoline Network. This is the 35th episode of Big Meg One. My name is Connor, alongside my friend Eli, and this is the podcast where two Americans patrol their way to the Judge Dredd magazine. This episode we're covering the Judge Dredd magazine for October and November 1993. That's volume two, issues 39 to 41. This episode, Mechanismo is on the loose. Hershey deals with a deals with Harlequins. The taxidermist follows his Olympic dreams, and we'll get we'll start news stories for Hawk and Burr and the Creep. How you doing this time, Eli? Doing great. All right, yeah, a little bit of a break between episodes here, but we're picking up right where we left off with more exciting magazine action. Yeah, glad <laughs> Should be, to be fun. Back. Yeah, fantastic. And I'll mention that, um, one, if you want to read along with us, you'll find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dredd, The Complete Case Files 19, The Taxidermist Collection, and The Judge Dredd Magazine, Issue 350. And also just that it's, I, I guess I said when, when, I, when I said what, what issues we're covering, but due to the vagaries of fortnightly um, publishing, both this episode and the next one will only be covering three issues of the magazine. That's just sort of how it works out sometimes. Okay. It was either that or do four this issue and two next ep- or four this episode and two next episode, which didn't seem like enough, honestly. Right. Yes. No, good call. Yeah. All right. I don't know if I do if, if I if I do say so myself. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. All right. Anyway, let's get started with robot action in story one mechanismo. Which is also uh, th- story one, Judge Dredd. Uh, scripter about John Wagner, artner about Emmanuel Bennett, letting her about Tom Frame. All right. Robot Judge Mechanismo number five. He's heavily damaged, but on the loose, slaughtering the citizens of Mega City One for the, for the, for the tiniest infractions. We see him gun down a citizen begging for mercy, and then he calls it into Justice Central, like, saying that he killed him because he was um he killed the man to preserve his operational status he's like i'm killing these guys for justice but also because they might give you like valuable information to catch me or whatever (laughs) the control judges try to get smart and ditch and dispatch five to a imaginary riot but he sees through their ruse Instead, he gets into a hover car and flies off, saying it must continue its mission. An APP goes out to all the judges as a traffic judge on a sky bike, just sort of does a random check on what turns out to be number five's hover car, and gets caught, shot in the face by a stun round and left chained to his vehicle. The next morning, there's a meeting at Justice Central as Chief Magruder... Um, is briefed on the situation. She can't understand why they didn't find number five when they swept the sewers. And then we flash back to two months ago where we see a bunch of sal or a pair of salvage guys follow their metal detectors to some loose bricks in a sewer wall and pulling them out. They find the damaged body of robot number five. 
At first, the scavengers think think about, oh, we could turn it in to get a reward. But hey, they're down in the sewers without a salvage permit. So they can't do that because even if they got a reward, they'd also be arrested. You know, Justice Department loves doing that kind of double whammy, Eli. (laughs) So instead, they say, oh, let's just take the robot judge with it. We can fix it ourselves. What's the worst that could happen? Oh, no. Definitely. Definitely. Oh, no. The other guy is skeptical, but they load him onto the truck anyway and head out. We see a judge camera drone flying through the Mega City One sewer, only finding the now fully insane Judge Stitch, who made the original Mechanismos and is now trying to find the lost number five and just sort of, you know, descending into madness. Uh, the judges ask Magruder if he should be brought out of the sewers, but she blames him for this whole situation in the first place. Ah, oh, you messed up those judges or those m- m- mechanoids. Anyway, it seems Five is seemingly only attacking in six central locations in Mega City One. So Magruder or- orders the judges to flood the zone in those areas and try to take advantage of the routine nature of robots. Because they're smart. Listen, see through these bot behaviors. But that night, Five shows up at an old age club deep in the uh, border of the of the mega city and starts enforce- enforcing harsh punishments. He asks a lady for the permit for her heart pills. And when she doesn't have one, she just dies of a heart attack right in front of him. <laughs> she, he arrest, the, the robot arrests 15 people and guns them all down. He calls into patrol and says... Um, he calls, he calls these deaths into control as well. And when they say he's breaking the law, he has only one response, Eli. I am the law. Ooh. He's using these code words against them. Soon five, five is popping up all over the city, arresting and then killing people. There's no set pattern. He must be using some kind of comp you randomizer. Oh no. It's running rings around us. But luckily, Chief Judge Magruder has a plan because you got to send a thief to catch a thief. And that means it's time to put the Mark II Mechanismo units online and send them after number five. Oh, oh no, a third time. And then hopefully, you know, when those guys start running amok, the Mark Threes will be ready to, right. you know, go after them. Just, yeah, just buying time. Right, right. It's like Apple, totally, pro- yeah. Apple products. It's just... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, try to make it to forced obsolescence. That's all you can hope for, you right. know. <laughs> the Mechanismo Mark IIs are set out into the city. Judges are ordered to assist the robots as needed. At the Grand Hall of Justice, though, Judge Dredd finally appears on the podcast, and I think is only the only time we'll see on this episode, actually. Or the start of it. He's just in this Mechanismo story, in this chapter of it. He calls into Magruder, asks for a private meeting, but Magruder's all about openness. Let's just talk out in the open, baby. And so Dredd questions her judgment with the Mark II Mechanismos. The first ones were such a disaster. She can't make the same mistake again. Magruder says that, you know, Stitch's error is what doomed the first version, and that's been fixed and everybody's got every faith that these mechanismos will work okay. Dred's like, only you think that, Magruder. You're nuts. I demand, uh, you know, demand. He demands the robots to be that to be pulled. Magruder says she's in charge. Dred can't make orders. So instead, Dred says that it's time Magruder resigned. Oh no, <laughs> this this drama between the judges, Eli, mom and dad are fighting. It's no good. 
After a pause, Magruder rejects um, Dredd's requests. Yeah, and sends him back on patrol. Dredd rides out into the night and and thinks that Magruder's insane and making bad decisions. But he knows that if the Mark II successfully take out number five, there'll be no getting rid of them because they'll be the saviors of the city and stuff. So he's got to take out Mechanismo himself, obviously. A report comes in of another attack by five, and it seems to match with what the Mark IIs have been predicting using their own compu randomizers. So Magruder orders the bots to take out five and the other judge to take to keep a low profile, and they've sort of projected that they'll be able to catch number five at 0315 hours in a sector 190. Meanwhile, Dredd's investigating Five's last appearance before before it disappears and gets a hint of something. He searches his computers for illegal reclamation outfits that have been spotted in the sewer system and seems to get a hit, which might be our friends from the flashback earlier this episode, who's to say. Meanwhile, the Mark IIs are standing post over Sector 180 as 03-1500 hours draws near. We see a loud party going on in the street outside a nightclub, and suddenly the kachinks of Five's peg leg sound. He's getting close. Um, he 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 calls in the uh, the party goers on five counts of noise complaints, and then just starts opening fire into the crowd. Reports start to come in, but he's not in Sector 109. He's in Sector 3. Oh, that's a completely different one. Oh, no. <laughs> we got to take this guy out, Eli. It's no good. Next time, Mechanoid Mayhem. Right. Uh, they played the whole uh, kachink as like a horror film. It was like uh, you see the people Absolutely. cut to the foot, back to the people, back to the foot. Uh, yeah, these super yeah, cute. these very ominous like peg leg footsteps that he's got for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm liking Mechanismo. I'm liking uh the ridiculousness of it. Um, yeah, yeah, he's so murderous and such an evil version of the judges, right? Mm, right, and uh, uh, still isn't too far off. I feel, but I don't know. Maybe that's more of me thinking too much mm-hmm. about. Uh, uh, dread. I guess there's a very thin line in him just kind of showing what one step in the other direction uh, yes. could end up with. Yes, I think, like, depending on who's writing Dread at the moment, like, <laughs> you know, you can get some pretty brutal, like, killing people for not a lot of reason versions of, of, of Dread. They're, they're out there, you know? Mm, right, right. <laughs> and, like, so Mechanismo's actions, like, might sometimes are not out of line, but sometimes they are. You know, it, it kind of depends. Right, right. It's fine. I do think it's really interesting just that the first two installments that we saw this time didn't have any dread in them at all, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it means that basically, and I'll, I'll mention this as well because it comes up in a letter uh, later this episode, but just that issues 39 and 40 despite being the judge dread magazine like don't feature judge dread in any way which i think is an interesting an interesting decision you right know? yeah it's i mean i think um because i mean mechanismo's um a character all on himself and i think mm-hmm. him being present is always a callback to dread like just it's yeah. existence. so um 
So it's almost like it's fine. Like it's almost like a different yeah. version of dread. It's alternate universe right. dread uh, being around. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, yeah, I'm not against it. I just think it's an interesting, it's an interesting decision that they must've been aware of. I know there was a time in 2000 AD, actually, where there was a story that actually, you know, going into our next thrill, but uh, a dread story that actually really heavily featured judge Hershey in it instead mm-hmm. of dread. And in that one, they actually ran a second dread story, like a um, in that in that issue, just that people weren't like, just so that these these little kids weren't like, "Where's Judge Dredd? <laughs> <laughs> I bought the comic to see Judge Dredd's adventures." Right. That kind of stuff, you right. know. No, I also think it is great to have these strong secondary characters or characters in their own right. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been watching a lot of uh, anime lately, and if it's not the main character being involved everyone else sucks. So I think it's a uh, uh, more of a good thing that they have like characters that can hold the mm-hmm. plot all on their own. Yeah. And I also want to mention just it's int- like we aren't seeing it in 2000 AD at the moment, but it is really interesting to see this robot stuff really be a crux of a, uh, of like a split between dread and uh, chief Magruder, you know, Ooh. this right. is something that will be a, a long-term plot point within um, within the two th- w- within the dread verse, so- sort of going forward, is just sort of them having a slightly more uneasy relationship, I guess. That's pretty cool. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole thing, you know, shapish things to come, I guess. But with that, I guess going back to talking about Judge Hershey, let's see her adventures with story two, Judge Hershey. Script robot Igor Goldkind, art robot Kevin Cullen, letter robot Gordon Robson. All right, there's an in-color Harlequin, like, you know, fancy circus clown, Cirque du Soleil type, menacing the black and white streets of Mega City One, stealing the, ci- the city's children for nefar- for unknown but presumably nefarious reasons. Among the stolen kids is the nephew of Judge Hershey, who we've learned, oh, and we've also learned that Hershey's first name is Barbara. Whoa. Important possible identity theft information to know for these judges. Eli, gotta know it. Um, Last episode, a bunch of kids were taken from the Ted Bundy Memorial Orphanage. And um, as the rest of the judges walk out and plan what to do next, a side judge makes a Pied Piper reference that no one else gets. No one knows this old-timey stuff, your ancient legends and whatever else. Um, Hershey's tired of guessing and figures she knows where the perp's next target is, the children's re-education clinic. Let's head over there and don't ever call me Barbara. (laughs) At the clinic, the judges are out in force over the objection to the doctor in charge. The judges and their guns are clearly scaring the kids, but Hershey says it's for their own good. And then that dang Harlequin arrives. A side judge scans the clown as Hershey trades barbs with him. The Harlequin says he's just doing this to keep the kids of the city safe. The side judge isn't, get, isn't getting anything, so Hershey decides to sort of do a little walk and talk and get the clown or and get the Harlequin away from the rest of the kids so that the judges have a clean shot. They open fire, but the bullets pass right through the clown back or the Harlequin back, bouncing back at the judges. Sorry, I, I started writing his name as clown in my recap because Harlequin is hard to type, Eli. I'm lazy. Um, <laughs> 
The bullets back bounce back with the judges, and then he takes those kids through a mystic stargate that's formed in a mirror, disappearing as Hershey demands to be taken with them. She wants those kids. Later, it seems that the Psy has scanned the Harlequin, and because of that, has gone insane. He's bound in a straitjacket, speaking in gibberish as Hershey talks to Chief Magruder. He's making a couple uh, appearances this this episode. Hershey says it's some kind of glossolia, which is like just sort of gibberish speaking mental illness. Um, but the, he keeps repeating the word Hennequin, which was some kind of ancient demon that manifested as a as a Harlequin. And it seems the Harlequin has also attacked the uh, the judges academy, taking over two hundred thousand ju- baby judges from there. Indeed, it seems that by fourteen hundred this afternoon. All the children of Mega City 1 have disappeared, which is no good. Hershey and Magruder talk privately. They're deeply concerned. To lose the children of the city is to lose hope of the future, um, which is sometimes all the citizens of Mega City 1 have. Magruder sends Hershey home, worried that the city will tear itself apart because of this. Back at her apartment, Hershey takes out the card the Harlequin gave her earlier in the story and looks at it seeing the clown's face on it. She drops the card and a gateway opens in a nearby mirror. She goes through it, Wizard of Ozing her way into a serene forest. That's when you, you know, travel to a different world and when you were once in black and white, now you're in color, basically. <laughs> um, there she's quickly found by her nephew, Anton, who seems to have gotten over the PTSD that he had gotten from uh, Judgment Day. And also, just because of this serene environment, thanks to the promises of safety from the Harlequin. Anton leads Hershey to this Harlequin demon, where they argue over the nature of reality. And, you know, sort of both will are willing to agree that in reality, Mega City 1's pretty shitty when you think about it. But you still gotta keep going. Hershey makes the point that trying to save these kids this way also dooms their parents to, you know, hopelessness and death. And this actually seems to convince Anton and in turn the Harlequin, who just like that sends everybody back without a fight, I guess. <laughs> and he says the choice has always been Hershey's. And she asks to know who the Harlequin really is. And he turns it back and is like, who are you really? Barbara Hershey. Whoa, spooky. And... I guess, whatever. As a massive riot forms outside of Justice Central, the side judge from before is recovered, and suddenly there's a massive light as Hershey warps in with all them kids in tow. And when people ask, when someone asks, she says, I'm not, don't even try to ask where I've been. I don't know, and I can't explain it, but I'm taking my nephew to the zoo. And they walk off. The end. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, I love the art. Of this one, I, I, I'm a big fan of black and white and uh, grayscale. Mm. And then the spot of color was also really exciting. Uh, Plot-wise, though, I feel like they were setting some stuff up, but I didn't f- didn't feel the payoff. I really thought more was going to happen. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, but- it just kind of got get, gets to a point where she, like, asks nicely, and that's enough, I guess. Oh. Like, okay, I, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. But I'm hoping this comes up later. <laughs> this, uh, something's involved here. <laughs> Maybe I can't say that I remember it coming up again, but who okay. who's to say? Uh, I mean, I think at the very least, an interesting thing that that someone could do a story about in the future 
is just, you know, these stories are still taking place and happening roughly real time. So Ooh. in Mega City One, like right now in, in 2020, in 20, in the future of 2022 or whatever, in the present, there's a whole generation of Mega City One children that for like a couple hours went to some weird fantasy world, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and that's got to. Right. That's got to do something to you, right? right. Like, that's a whole thing. Yeah. I'd be disappointed if I was a kid, went to a fantasy world, and then just got teleported back, and then I just lived a boring life the rest of the time. I mean, that's kind of a ripoff, really. I mean, luckily, I think with the amount of mega epics we'll be getting as time goes by, no one really lives that boring of a life in Mega City <laughs> 1. Right, right. Uh, but yeah. Uh, Although, uh, it, it's, it's one of those, like, it's it, it's like the Chinese curse where you're, you know, cursed to be, to live in interesting times, you know? Like, that's mm-hmm. like, that's that's a curse, not a blessing, you know? Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they seem to be implying some sort of ability or future for Harlequin. The madness yeah. that is gained from gaining in his mind. I'm assuming maybe some sort of time travel or... Cthulhuan Something. horror. Like, yeah, well, see, yeah see, he kind of also talks about that, like, the serene forest that they're in was created by the minds of the mega citizens or something like i don't know there is a lot going on but i don't think anything comes of it that's why i didn't go to it it's fair like it's fair a whole thing i don't know but so judge hershey will return for a brief cameo in July of 1994, and her next solo series isn't until 1995, at least in the in the magazine. I forget if there's 2080 stories. But that's when we'll see her next. Not for a little while. Mm. Yeah, but that's you know that's one corner. That's the Mega City One stuff, Eli. You know, right. one corner of the Dreadverse. But on the opposite side of the world of Judge Dread, we can check out Story Three: Shimura. Uh, script about Robbie Morrison, art about Frank Quitely, lettering about Ellie Deville, Hondo Sit, Dreadworld Japan. Here we go. We're just dipping into this one for the uh, for the climactic co- conclusion of Shimura. Um, we're in Hondo as evil cyber lizard man CEO Basamune Taoka menaces the uh, lady doc- Dr. Yukiko Hidari. She's got a computer virus that can take Taoko out, but like, you know, the mad cyborg guy isn't letting her use it. And we also see Inspector Shimura and Cadet Itami have been knocked out. They're sort of biomechanical super suits used against them by uh, by Taoko in a previous fight. Um, yeah, he's... Um, and indeed, he then threatens to take control of the entire mega city of Hondo. He's going to crash power satellites in it and just kill everybody, cause chaos over the land. You know, sort of a standard supervillain monologue and going on here, basically, <laughs> Eli. Um, Sh- uh, Shimura and Itami um, sort of wake up in this ruined, ruined room, seemingly out of options if their super suits won't work. But Shimura does have a plan. They send in a decoy wearing one of the bioengineered uniforms and then confront Taoka shirtless with katanas and nunchucks as the Lord intended. Right. <laughs> Love a good katana and nunchuck. Doesn't make any sense in terms of how Japanese martial arts works. Like, you know, because <laughs> katana, weapon of the nobility, nunchuck, improvised weapon based on farming equipment meant for the peasant class. You right. wouldn't mix them together, honestly. But here you go. It's fine. 
I know some things about Japan. <laughs> anyway, we do get some good fight images here, though, as Shimura stabs Taoko a bunch of times, gets him in the eye and stuff, which is pretty neat. And at the same time, uh, Itami uploads the virus. It swiftly works, turning the green cyber body of Taoka into a blue crystalline one that then shatters with a kick. Right. Brains the day everywhere. is saved. Yeah, just brains and cyber guts all over the place. <laughs> the day is saved, and Shimura reveals that he's already approved Itami for the promotion, and she'll become the first female Hondo inspector. The story ends with her in her full uniform, looking out on the sky of Hondo, about to go enforce some justice. The end of Shimura! But he'll be back. We'll see. We'll continue his adventures in uh, April of 1994, so not too long from now. Nice. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I like this one. Yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty standard stuff, but uh, I like the action. I really like the art style. Um, yeah, I, I, I really like Frank... Frank Quietly, he's great, and I do like like that he's sort of copy or letting his style be influenced by kind of a a manga or, or Japanese style here. I think. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, just fun story. Uh, no complaints. <laughs> yeah, perfectly fine. Perfectly, perfectly acceptable. Yeah, right. we got some judges. Right. They're beating people up. Right. A decoys you, so there's some cleverness. Good times. Right. Uh, nunchuck, <laughs> katana combo, which, yeah, is, yeah, it's, it's fine. Maybe these are, these are the future. So, you know, maybe the working class and the elite got together. It's you true. Know, and then, you know, maybe it shows humbleness, but also class. I don't know. I, Ooh. Yeah. Plus, they are laser nunchucks, so right. it could be a whole just different situation, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, all right. Awesome. All right, good times. So let's listen. We're about halfway through. Let's take a quick break and talk about some covers, editorials, and dreadlines. Just all the non-story stuff, uh, non-comic stuff from these issues. Starting with issue 39, Frank Quietly draws a very fine Shimura cover. I like this one a lot with the inspector sort of stepping forward, standing in the center of the uh, of the rising sun, the, the flag of Japan here, katana at the ready. <laughs> because it's sort of this upward like view from the top of someone walking forward, it, actually, it feels very um, Akira inspired to mm, me. I, I, guess. I hadn't made that comparison, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> but I think just, you know, that sort of famous Akira cover of him, like, you know, walking toward his bike or yep. something like that. <laughs> like, I could definitely I could definitely see that being on the mood board you'd build <laughs> when you were getting ready for this story, you know. Um, inside, the editorial mentions that there's 10 free dread novels that must be won with more details later. And then mid-issue, there's an excerpt from that novel, Dreadlocked. It's the third Judge Dread novels. Um, and there's about a, like maybe four columns of the story. There's some Dread interactions, but mostly it's just sort of spooky goings-on in Mega City 1. The cover's by Arthur Ranson, depicting Dread with some kind of like gumshoe, like, you know, in a trench coat detective kind of guy. In Dreadlines, the letters section... There's a lot of letters worrying that a version of Dread published by DC Comics that's coming out soon will, one, have Dread take his helmet off, and two, become way more popular than the British version of Dread and supplant that, cra that classic version, Eli. Oh, no. 
But I don't know. To me, this there's a lot of response about this. But to me, it seems like sort of putting the cart before the horse. Like it's very much like like. And what if an American version comes out and it's so popular and so many Americans read it that that becomes the default version of Judge Dredd and not the British version that we've read? And it's like you know, listen, no offense, but Dredd just doesn't make it. Right. <laughs> it doesn't really make it right. in the states that well. So yeah. you don't have to worry that much. Yeah. Uh, we're uh, bred here to have brand loyalty. So like, uh, yeah, to a to, to a sad extent sometimes. <laughs> right. To be honest, exactly. Not taking, not <laughs> enjoying anything new. Are you crazy? Right. It it very much feels like you know your your small town band. You know they're going to L.A. to try to make it big, but the main thing you're worried about is like how you won't sell out once you've become popular or something right. like that you right. know like you gotta work you, you gotta work on your songs buddy like worry <laughs> about your ethos at a later <laughs> date i don't know <laughs> anyway issue 40 the horrors of halloween dean ormstrom draws hark and burr and a menacing vampire walking among the tombstones and there's 10 copies of the of uh, a Mechanismo graphic novel to be won. This one collecting the first two Mechanismo stories, Mechanismo and Mechanismo Returns. Not that's the most recent one that we're reading right now. In Dreadlines, readers complain about the recent Dread mega epic in 2000 AD, Inferno, ask for reprints of Swimming in Blood, and then just talk more about like political correctness within the comic. I think this might be a rare instance of the word political correctness being used earnestly instead of as something where people are complaining about political correctness. You like 1993 is a weird time, basically. Um, there's also more just discussion about the movie. Lots of, of of the dread movie. Lots of people worried about the again the helmet coming off, and then there's a list of winners for a previous um, contest of writing captions for a Judge Dredd cosplayer talking to uh, CEO Richard Branson. Uh, finally, Prog 41, the cover depicts the big moment from the story we read of uh, Dredd, Dredd and um, Magruder fighting and him saying she should resign. Oh, snap. <laughs> On the inside cover, there's also an ad for a sweet uh, Sonic the Comet belt clip, Eli. Put this on your belt. Let people know you read this comic about video games. Come on. And there's also two different Batman comics currently running. You can get one every fortnight, it seems. Dreadlines has lots of compliments for Shimura and some hard questions about the taxidermist. Like, he wanted to buy five bodies, but he only used four. What happened to that extra body? <laughs> and then mentioned the thing I said earlier where issue 37 also didn't feature Dread in any of the stories. And again, that's happened again in 39 and 40. I mean, mostly it's just because there's sort of one main Dread story. And if you don't have Dread appear in that one, then that's sort of how the cookie crumbles, basically. Right. And then this, and then this story, or this this issue ends with a single page Dread story where we see a mega citizen at Bazooka Bowl, where you bowl by shooting a bowling ball from a shoulder mounted bazooka, which seems pretty awesome, honestly. <laughs> but also seems like it would lead to the problems we see, see here, where some goons try to rob a bowler, but he accidentally shoots him in the face with that bazooka. <laughs> oh, no. 
<laughs> the perps run off and soon Dredd arrives and takes that bowler to a police lineup where we see the two perps with giant bowling ball deformed faces are actually pretty easy to pick out in the lineup. This is just silly just to see the crazy, like, sort of Beetlejuice. Like, one guy's got a right. head that's, like, pulled way back, like a, right. like a peanut or a string bean. Right. And the other guy's just got a giant bowling ball lodged in his mouth, right. you know? Yeah. Uh, teeth all surrounding it. Right. And they're trying to right. play it innocent. Like, I don't know who it could have been. Right. Yeah, so. I just got pulled in for this right. for this uh, lineup. You know, don't pick me. Right. These other guys look pretty pretty <laughs> suspicious. You right. know, yeah. Uh, but I think it's pretty much just target practice with bowling ball rocket launcher, right? Like, do the pins actually Absolutely. add any element? Anyway, I'm thinking too much about game design now. Like, <laughs> I'd like to give it a shot, honestly. Right. Like, dislocate. Like it seems like you could. Get go that ball would go very fast when it hits the pin. There would be quite an explosion or just right. something. Yeah, I'm always, I'm always worried about sports injuries. So this just seems mm, like there's adding way yeah, more yeah, the recoil. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like there's a lot built onto the shoulder thing. So it does seem like it does have a, a fair oh. amount of recoil compensation. Mm-hmm. They've thought I about guess. it. Okay, that's that's good. I mean, I'd say the real hard part is just that, like a gutter ball is just going to go straight through the wall out in the street mm. or something like that. You know, you have to be <laughs> oh, careful. No. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of terrifying deaths, Eli, or maybe <laughs> coming back from terrifying deaths, mm. we go to story four: the taxidermist. Script about John Wagner, art about Ian Gibson, learning about Annie Parkhouse. Here we go. I like this story a lot. Um, we're in Nepal for the 2116 Olympics and we open on a giant like mount snowy mountainscape as the mountaineering events begins with teams of six from each country scaling Mount Everest. Most of them plan to die and the Mega City One team admits that they've got a pretty crappy team honestly like I wouldn't sell us any life insurance you know. <laughs> But enough of that that depressing stuff, okay? Cuz we cuz while the spring cleaning event has just ended, it's time for the first round of staring to begin with Mega City One's own Agnes Laser Gaze Bolton going up against Ve- Beijing's AJ AJ Lim. They're 2 hours into staring Eli and they're going strong. And what I really like here is just that Ian Gibson draws this staring contest and it's all these like all these panels cutting super quick just between like close ups of eyes and the broadcast booth and, you know, shot counter shots and all these things (laughs) trying to make it look so like like tense and exciting. And it's really just two people sitting there looking at each other, you know, (laughs) like that's all it is. Right. Uh, and it, it adds a lot of energy to it, though. It does make you feel, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's one of those things that comics can do where they can just show you some images in an order and then you get like, this is funny. Like, what? why? Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, <laughs> visually. Because it's so mundane. But, you know, I mean, this sort of like this sort of panel structure, all these cuts and stuff are what you do for a fight. Right. right it's exactly. like. The Shimura fight we saw earlier in the episode, right? Mm-hmm. But instead, right. it's just people staring at each other. And right. It's hilarious. Right. You know? I do really like that they put the reflection of the person they're staring at in the eyes of the person staring. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. a lot of- Ooh, that right. intensity. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
<laughs> Back at the studio, we, we meet Mega City One's star farter. He's going to start fart green sleeves for the talent portion of the, of, of the show. And we find, then we finally get to taxidermy. It looks like the first event is to skin and stuff one body by hand as quickly and precisely as possible. The goal is speed, but there are time deductions for making mistakes. Our man Jake Sardini is working hard and manages to take fifth place in terms of time for initial skin removal, but many of the guys that were faster than him have also messed up the job pretty uh, severely. We check in briefly then with the staring contest and learn that two-ton Toby Tub Tubbs is going to be taking part in the eating contest, which I'm very excited for. Guy weighs two, one of these ultra fatties. He weighs two tons. And um, then we see the scoring for the skinning event, and it seems Sardini has risen to second place. Now it's time for fitting and finishing, and the story's the same. Sardini is not the quickest, but he is the best. And his work gets nearly perfect scores, sort of putting on makeup and doing the hair of this uh, of this corpse. Nearly perfect scores. He's in first place. All right. So Sardini, he's going into the compulsory or he's going to be heading into the compulsory round where the lead commentator for the game says he might struggle from a lack of endurance. And speaking of endurance, we're at the end game of the staring contest. AJ Lim has developed a twitch on one eye while a laser gaze remains a stony countenance. And finally, with an IE Lim, he blinks and gaze has won the day. Laser gaze. The announcer talks briefly with a contestant for the swearing contest. And then finally, we get to the one we've all been waiting for, Eli, the mixed pairs sex event. <laughs> Some very hot and bothered announcers take us to Janet Turvey and Christopher Probe as they enter the arena. They're each wearing sort of part of an American flag and not much else. You know, like one's got a, 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 a blue with a white star, the other one's got red and white stripes, and they're naked underneath. The music begins, and they start their sex routine, sort of balletically with him kissing her foot, and then they sort of cut away as many things are implied to be happening. Oh, my. <laughs> Sardini is watching this action and tisking. In his day, they just kind of kiss and stuff, you know. <laughs> it's become become uh, quite uh, lurid and so forth. Um, his assistant, Hedda Korpenstorfer, chides him for not listening to the plans of what's coming up. Their next event is on Friday. We'll, uh, they'll have five hours to do an arrangement of bodies, the theme not announced until 10 minutes before they start. And then five days after that, it's the free program, which they have 12 hours to work in, can use up to 12 bodies, and it must incorporate some element of animation. But Sardini's never done animation. He hates it. It's robotics, not taxidermy. But he can't hope to win without incorporating it. And Hedda like, considers getting someone to train him in it quickly. But as she thinks about that, it's clear Sardini's fallen asleep. He's old. He's, you know, she and a coach worry about his staying power. That night, Sardinia awakens to a noise. It's that flautist practicing farting green sleeves. He knows he won't get back to sleep, so he goes for a walk on the nighttime streets of Katmandu. 
He wanders into an ancient part of the city, past the Mount of Eagles, where the dead are taken to be exposed. And we learn the city's being modernized by the Guru Mahama. Sardini passes a beggar, and then they both turn to see a passing sedan chair thing with armed guards. It's the Guru Mahama himself! All right. The beggar explains that the Guru often travels among the very poor, giving out charity. The Guru stops and gives the beggar a a loaf of bread and recognizes Sardini in the two talk. He admires Sardini's technique and appreciates an older gentleman in, in the sport. He knows, that Sardin- he knows about Sardini's concerns over animation and advises him to always be true to himself. The guru also regrets that he won't be there to see his, um, how he does in the contest, but says that their fates are closely in- entwined, which is sort of ominous, and then he <laughs> leaves. <laughs> <laughs> On Friday, we learn the theme of the compulsory round, Dinner for Four. Sardini thinks on the theme and requests props and then goes to prepare the bodies. But when he does, he recognizes one of the bodies as that beggar he talked to the previous night. That's concerning. He's so shaken by it that that he needs to sit down, but in the end decides that death should hold no fear for a taxidermist. They work with it so closely, so he gets back to work. Meanwhile, we check in on the mountaineering event, which is mostly just talking into a radio to see how they're going, and the connection is terrible. Uh, So they just sort of move on. We also learn that that farter dude has come in a a terrible 27th place for shame, while Laser Gaze has easily defeated her opponent and is on to the next round. Finally, we learned that in synchronized swimming, a dude with a knife has attacked and slaughtered everybody at the event for being so boring. And everybody's basically okay with that, which is a bummer. I think synchronized swimming has its places. You know? Yeah. It's a lot. Anyway, Sardinia's finished his work. A lovely family meal with the body of that beggar he met popping a champagne cork. And the cork and the... Bo- and the, uh, and the uh, champagne with it have been sort of held in place by a, a crystallizing gas. It's pretty cool. Looks nice. Sardini's almost satisfied. Ooh, his elusive perfection. Meanwhile, the Cuban um, cont- uh, uh, taxidermist who's in second place behind Sardini, uh, Discador, is having a meltdown, yelling at his corpse subject. Uh, but it's too late for him to do anything else because time's up and they have to let the judging begin. Next time on the taxidermist, lost gold? Yes. Yeah, exciting times at the future Olympics, you know? Yeah, yeah I really like that. Uh, I'm a big um, uh Making weird contests, I didn't know I was so excited about it. But yeah, just mm-hmm. every, same thing with like uh, sports shows or when uh, like anime makes a co- uh, show about like volleyball or whatever. It's always like oddly Absolutely. fascinating. You're like, oh yeah, how are they going to make it out of this one? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I recently I recently read all of uh of Food Wars. All right. Like 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 <laughs> nice. like like that uh, uh a manga which is which is very silly, but right. it's basically just a, a series of martial arts tournaments, <laughs> but instead of martial arts they're cooking basically. Right. Exactly. But it, it's got all those beats of like 
a martial arts manga story, you know, mm-hmm. where it's yeah. like, you know, <laughs> like, like, but how could he defeat me? Yeah. Ah, you see, mm-hmm. you know, right, like exactly. that kind of stuff. Yeah, because this feels like a a, a boxing uh, comic. It's like, a, all right, going mm-hmm. against the champ. Do you, does the old timer still have it? I don't know. All these very much, young yeah. Guys. The, the old timer's crafty and has techniques mm. versus these these brash older guys that think or, or or younger guys that think that they've got the world on a string. You mm. know, yeah. definitely, it's definitely all of these sports, all of these kind of sports motifs, mm-hmm. but also weirdly about preparing corpses. <laughs> right, exactly, and I think it's also fun that they incorporate a bunch of the other sports just kind of as side notes, just to kind of keep things interesting. Um, Absolutely. I think that this, like, this sort of flashing to this futuristic weirdness, you know, mm -hmm. a staring contest, a sex contest, you know, (laughs) all these different things are really fun and, like, keep and just sort of, you know, keep, like, they, they build suspense for the taxidermy, honestly, because you're sort you know, because it's or for each other, actually, because I feel like I'm also very invested in laser gaze winning <laughs> the gold medal as much as I am Sardini. You know, right. I want to know what's going to go on with this mountaineering team, stuff right. like that, you know? Right. Yeah. And I also, for some reason, the concept of a sex contest, I think it's maybe due to modern stigma around it that I'm like. That feels like an interesting next logical step. Like we are there, they, they they don't do porn anymore. So what they do is they just have it on the Olympics, yeah. and they just you know it's patriotic. Which I'm like, I think that's right. a more yeah, it's more accurate depiction of uh, what's actually going on. Is why oh, wow, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like it's it's like porn's become so standard that now it's <laughs> it's, it's it's been forced to become <laughs> high art and athletic competition. <laughs> you <Right>. know. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, very interesting. Like, it's not sorted anymore, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, just fun, fu- fun future stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I like future stuff. Right. Why not in this sci-fi comic? Right. You know. Although I don't know why they killed all the swimmers. I guess that it's boring. That just feels now. like a yeah, like a joke about synchronized swimming, which right. like you know is an actual Olympic event. Right. So it's sort of like you know. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's one of those things because to me, I'm reading it as at first I thought it was maybe the creator thinks swimming's boring, but then I was like maybe in the future that's the oldest sport, so people are just done with it. Like it's not one of the new. Yeah, sports. yeah. Like we've been seeing this for hundreds of years in the Olympics. Who right. you know old news, you know. Right. <laughs> I don't know. And just I think like it's sort of one of these like sometimes, especially if it's just kind of off screen and joked about, right. like extreme violence can be funny. Like let's not <laughs> let's not count it out. You know, right. it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I guess, but you know, while it's Olympic season for the taxidermist, it's still Halloween as these comics are actually coming out in late November and early December. Oh. So we can get spooky. With story five, with story five, Harkenberg. Sorry, I started doing it like a ghost and forgot how I normally do it. All right. <laughs> Script robot Cy Spencer, art robot Dean Ornstrom, letting robot Fiona Stevenson. Grave robbing antique dealers are go. Harken, um, it's Harkenberg. They're in sort of deep in the cursed earth and get involved in various spooky stories. Burr and a tavern lady discuss tales of a rampant hamster murderer on the loose in their town, and Burr agrees to watch the uh, lady's hammy until the killer is caught. But oh no, Mr. Ork ate hamsters! 
Meanwhile, Mr. Hark himself is at the spooky mansion of Mr. Uriot, um, where um, when he's attacked by the mansion owner's pet bat, Bathory. And Bathory is the name of some, like, medieval noblewoman lady who's famous for having, like, bathed in the blood of virgins to keep her own beauty or something like that. Whoa. (laughs) And I'm spending a lot of time trying to figure out, like, if Mr. Uriat, if that's a joke for something. Mm. Like, I think it's it's a tarry backwards, but Mm. that's the best that I can... The best that I can put together right now, it, it might mm. be some British thing that I just uh, don't have the tools to understand. Mm. You know, always a possibility in these ones, Eli. Right. <laughs> but uh, it seems that he's selling some family antiques to fund his care for the local bat population. And he also says that he doesn't like hamsters either. The room of the antiques that he's selling is strangely all mirrors of various kinds. Mm. And <laughs> while Hark is inwardly excited at these finds, he lowballs Ariat at the price of 200 creds, you know, good times. Hark heads out as Ariat sings a happy songs about animals, except for hamsters. Back at the <laughs> shop, Ark looks for Bert to tell him the good news of the sale, but there hears a strange grunting. It's a giant hamster monster! Ah, uh, but it seems like that's just actually that lady's hamster. They're quite large here. So, um, as Burr restrains the beast from attacking Hark, and a mysterious figure we see va- very vampire, sort of vampires combined with Batman runs across the rooftops. <laughs> Hark indeed doesn't like hamsters, as we see Mr. Ariat break into a pet shop and attack. Hark says the hamster must go, but then hit the uh, pet's appreciative owner arrives and is so happy that her hamster is still alive that Hark has no choice but to agree to let the beast stay. The pair head out to Ariat's home, where the master of the house is getting extremely vampirish and can smell a hamster on them. Burr prepares to load all the stuff uh, from the house, and it does, in fact, seem that he's brought the hamster with him in the back of their cart. And it's got a little bowler hat, which is fun. (laughs) Burr unloads the rodent and looks around and sees in the backyard many, many gravestones of a pet cemetery in the back. And then suddenly, bony zombie hamsters start to rise up. Help me, Mr. Rock! Next time, the vampire strikes back. Yeah, fun, <laughs> creepy. Uh, it fits all the criteria. Yeah, okay zombie action here, right. I think. What always bothers me, and it could be because I'm just getting a lot of vampire media lately, that uh, the tell, the signs that you're dealing with a vampire always go unheeded, but it always seems so obvious like I, here's yeah, all he's like mirrors. he's like oh come back anytime at after dark you know right. he's only giving away a bunch of mirrors right. all well, that pre- kind of stuff presumably because he doesn't need them anymore right because he's a vampire right exactly right. <laughs> yeah you know he's very interested in the bats these children of the night etc right. right. you know yeah i'm like you just ask hey are you a vampire you know just get it get it out the way be honest uh, yeah, it, it's it's like a it's 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 like an undercover copy. Like if you ask them, they have to tell you. That's right. just how exactly. it works. Yeah, right. They keep asking you to invite them into the, your house, and you're like, you can just come in. Why do you need the invitation every time? 
I don't know reason. Uh, uh, what is it? Um, I just recently watched, read, um, learned a little bit more about Fury of Dracula, the uh, book of the kind of got things started. And one thing, mm-hmm. uh, and this is completely an aside. I just want to share it because I have sure, this information. Absolutely. Um, yeah. If you put a rose on the vampire's coffin, they can't get out of it. Uh, but it's something, it's something that isn't really ever touched on again. But like Dracula just had a bunch of lore. And then media yeah. just kind of cho- picked and chose the ones they wanted to. It's keep. definitely it's definitely funny what what makes the cut from like the Bram Stoker novel to mm. sort of whatever those Bela Lugosi movies that I think all va- all <laughs> vampire stuff is actually based on. Right. You know? Right. Right. No, because in, in the in like the original novel, he can go out during the day and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. Sure. like it's it's not even a thing. And he was like. Uh, part werewolf he could turn into a wolf on occasion and like a, b- yeah. a bunch of things uh but yeah vampires kind of becoming this new thing is interesting i gotta do some sort of media where i bring back some of that old weird vampire stuff that doesn't isn't just a stake in the heart because uh, yeah definitely uh, yeah, yeah no one expects that kind of stuff right right you know like, right and also why is a stake uh, in the heart a weakness if it also kills everything it's well, like, I mean, I've definitely seen versions of the of vampires where when you stake them, like the staking them just like keeps them dead. But if you like pull the stake uh, out, they'll come back to life. I see. Right? It's, a, it's a pause button. <laughs> I yeah. I see. But like, I think it's, but like, I also, I like, but counter, but also like in like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, for instance, mm. like if a vampire gets hit, like in the chest cavity by a pencil they just turn to dust which is far different than right. you know nailing a stake right into someone's heart you know like through the rib cage or whatever yeah so there's no, some variance yes. you know it's fascinating yeah <laughs> Duh, uh, yeah no it, it's it's like in morbius where there's a chemical that's deadly to vampire to to all vampire bats right and humans you know <laughs> right no it's fun and speaking about weirdos, Eli, mm. let's finish up with Story 6 Creep. Speaking of what the hell am I doing here? Oh, man, these Radiohead references. Yeah. Fast and fast uh, and furious. That's cute. Although, <laughs> that song, Creep by Radiohead, I don't think comes out till 1994, so it's completely unrelated. Maybe they were inspired by this this episode, you know? Uh, possible. I mean, possible, I guess. But so, yeah, um, script robot size Spencer, art robot art uh, art robot Kevin Cohen, letting robot Gordon Robson. So this is the the writer from the previous story, the Hark and Burr story, and the artist from the Hershey story. This episode sort of coming together for a, a whole different thing. Nice. Um, so yeah, lots. Of, also, lots of sewer stuff. This episode, new story, new thrill here. As we see some Mega City One guys making their way through the tunnels of the Undercity, making their way to the big smelly, the underground remains of um, like the Hudson River, some river in Mega City One. And they're going hunting or fishing or something like that. One of them pulls out a harmonica when another figure ahead starts playing one. It's this little bald mutant guy, not unlike um, Billy Redden, the guy who pl- pl- the the guy who has a kid was that uh, banjo playing weird kid in the movie Deliverance, which is a movie I've seen references to but have not seen myself because it seems like it's disturbing. <laughs> One of the hunters tries to threaten this kid, calls him creep, even takes a shot at him, trying to do that like dance kind of thing, but the 
kid just stays still. The creep just stands there smiling. <laughs> Later, we see the men camped out in the sewers, one of them like fishing off the side just into the sewer water down there. He gets a bite, but the fish is lost. And we see the creep looking on from the distance. The guy who shot at the creep earlier goes to take a leak. And when he does, he gets his head smashed into the side of a wall, seemingly murdered. Later, the other hunters are cooking dinner and notice their friend missing. They go to investigate and find the blood stain on the wall, but no body. They start to get nervous and go to look for him, heading down a manhole cover deeper into the sewers. First, they see some kind of weird goblin dude who asks that they not hurt him, but it's wearing the missing man's dog tags. That seems crazy, but it's all a ruse as the creep comes out of the shadows and grots another one of the hunters who's got like some kind of electric plug for a nose. That's neither here nor there. Next time, Dance of the Mad. Uh, What do you think, creep? Yeah, well, I, I still love the art, so I can't. I'm, 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 if you give me good enough art, I'll check it out. What I want to know what's happening <laughs> next. Um, but sure, uh, yeah, uh, the, this ink, this like ink wash style is is pretty interesting for sure. Yeah, yeah, I really love the contrast. But one one thing I notice is that they all are wearing those weird nose plug things. I think it might be something to do with them oh, being okay, in the yeah. city. Yeah, or I mean, in the sewer. Because uh, I was oh, like, that's, that's that's actually a good shout. Yeah, they probably have their noses removed so they didn't have to smell all the sewer smells. Right. Yeah. Because I was like, why does everyone have three nostrils? And then I was I like went through to check. And it's like, oh no, they're all wearing that thing or whatever it is. Um, yeah. But yeah, starting good, off creepy. Good call for sure. Uh, let's uh, see where it goes. They're gonna have to, you know, you know, how many ways can they make a creepy sewer mutant person there? You know, it's. Yeah, I feel like I'm generally a fan of stories where people are being picked off one by one. Like mm. certainly an, an, a, enough horror movies with that basic plot, you know. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, but I'm hopeful. Yeah, yeah, it could be fun. I, I'd like it to be good, certainly. You know, it's my eternal <sighs> thing. <laughs> but hey, with that, Eli, we've reached the end of our stories for these magazines and thus, I must ask you, what are your top and bottom stories mm. for this October and early November 1993? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. And I, I don't know, because I feel like a um, part of me is just, like, excited about getting back to the stories. So it's like I have these – like, I have an immediate answer, which isn't like me. Um, mm. But um, I uh, for bottom, I think the uh, Hershey story – um, but I think it's because, okay, yeah, uh, for sure. it just, uh, I, f- I felt it was taking me somewhere and then didn't, it just left me on the side Definitely, of the road. Definitely. Yeah. It, 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 it is kind of like a, like a, like literally a dud. Like it just, <laughs> right. the, the explosion doesn't really go <laughs> off. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, and then, um, for my, uh, top, I really liked the taxidermist. Um, nice. Yeah. But I think it's, um, cause I, I'm wondering, why that is but i think it's just because um i've become jaded i need i need my stories i need i need to feel things uh <laughs> so uh and the taxidermist surprised me with how much i cared and then the judge hershey story um surprised me with how much i was like and wait that's the end uh so i think those feelings just stick with me longer so i think that's why uh, but you know, after I get in the vibe, I remember thinking more about these things and you know having more feelings and thoughts. 
So maybe after, as we Listen, get into flow, just gotta 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 build these muscles up, right? You know <laughs> these these harsh comic judging muscles, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, uh, but yeah, what were your top and bottom? Oh man, there's some interesting stuff in here. I mean, I'm definitely intrigued by the uh, by the Mechanismo story. I think that one's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Like, it's interesting to see the judges like have to fight an elusive quarry. Honestly, so yeah. many judge stories generally are like. Once they've identified someone doing p- crimes, they're able to sort of drop down and take them out, you know, mm, so I right. judge that it or so a villain that's able to elude them while taunting them, I think is very interesting. Mm. Yeah. And that was my close the, second. Yeah. Uh, I really did like that one. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a second for me, too, because I, I got to pick the taxidermist. I really like yeah. it. Um, <laughs> I, I really like Ian Gibson's art of just all these like this all these sort of stylized weirdos and stuff. Mm. And I also just really liked actually like a lot of the art scenes of like that section where Sardini walks around Katmandu and stuff like that. I liked a lot of the cityscapes, mm. sort of eastern cityscapes there as well. Yeah, those those, then, those were cool. Yeah, and then just the humor just of these events of all these people doing this weird stuff and things like that you know just just dumb weird future stuff is really what i'm looking for generally (laughs) in this podcast so getting that is really a high point for sure um for my bottom i might pick harkin burr i think Mm-hmm. Like I don't know if this hamster stuff is as <laughs> as funny as I'd like it to be. I guess right. Yes, I can understand and, that. It's pretty flat. Yeah. Uh, vampires and hamster jokes. It's like okay, I get it. And just like honestly, I think maybe art wise too. Like that. This is one of these ones that that feels very muddy. Like everything's sort of in these in these brown shades. I guess that. Ooh. Like, at the very least, I liked the contrast between the color and the black and white in Hershey, for instance. Although, Mm -hmm. that one's also near my bottom, just because, again, like you said, the very anticlimactic, Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's just it then, I guess, (laughs) um, um, ending, you know? Yeah, I I think it hits worse because um, the antagonist just lets everyone go. It almost feels like, because I think it it could be Disney film or, you know, the recent uh, uptick in, you know, uh movies but i'm just expecting more from my antagonist now like i don't want one that yeah. does the thing you're so i immediately start wondering why and then they're like you know what never mind here you go i'm like so why did you do, why why are we here why did you do this uh plus he clearly <laughs> does have a point of view and thoughts about these things he's just mm. sort of decided not to tell us about it right. essentially just right. like oh you want to go back fine whatever <laughs> okay like, <laughs> This is not earning me interest in your in, in your general steez here, you know. Right. I don't know. <laughs> right. But anyway, exciting times. And yeah. we're continuing on. Just one more episode and then we're done with 1993. Very exciting. Ooh. Do we do the and award ceremony it, after that? Yeah, then it's time for the Meggies. Absolutely. Nice. Start 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 warming up your Meggies um <laughs> your, your Meggies choices. We'll talk a little more about that next episode for sure. All right. And I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Big Meg One on iTunes, Titch, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or our podcast site at BigMegOne.com. Contact us at BigMegOne at gmail.com. The 2080 forums are our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. For all those, check out Big Meg One with one written out, and you'll find us there. Feel free to drop us a rating or review wherever you're listening to us or suggest us to anybody looking for a cool podcast. This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Robert Hardingham, and your friends at the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. 
check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cradleline. That's the podcast network. Sign up there and get advanced episodes. Come back next time as we reach the end of Mechanismo, Creep, and Hark, and Burr, and start new stories with Missionary Man, Calhab Justice, and the all-new story, Pan-African Judges. We're headed to a whole new continent for judging adventures, Eli. Whoa. Could be something. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, until then, I'm Conrad there, Eli, and we are Big Mac One. Drock it. Drock it.